Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here is a double shot from our featured artist today, The Scarlet Goodbye. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. And that was The Scarlet Goodbye from their brand new release. And we got Daniel on the line right now. Hey, Daniel, how you doing? I'm doing very good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Now, this is the first time you've been on our show, and we always like to give our fans an opportunity to get to know an artist. And the best way to do that is through your journey. So give us the story of uh, Daniel and, of course, the Scarlet Goodbye. Well, when I was about 16 or 17 years old, I um, didn't really know how I fit in in high school. So I would sit in my room and I played guitar like a million other guitarists of my generation, and I learned... Aerosmith and Rolling Stone songs, and then maybe I was in 10th grade, I saw the band The Clash, and it kind of changed my whole reality for a different take. And I started a little band that was called Loud Fast Rules with my friends, and we turned into a band that was called Soul Asylum. And I was in that band for 30 years, and I made 15 records with them, and we won a Grammy for a song called Runaway Train, and um, toured the whole world, and we were on Columbia Records mostly. A&M Records, and um, I did that for a long time, and I really felt like I needed a break, and I quit music altogether. Maybe in 2016, I left the band, and 2015, I took like five years off where I didn't play music at all. I didn't. I listened to music a little bit, but I literally didn't pick up a guitar or write any songs. And I was at my band partner, Jeff Arundel, was at a holiday party at his house, like the December right before COVID, like three years ago. And he took me up to his little recording studio and he played me a song that he'd recorded. And I was like, God, I kind of missed this. It was like the first time I had like any 
warm memories and recollections about the fun times in music. I mean, I loved the band I was in, Soul Asylum, but it was like, it kind of, it, we travel a lot. I mean, I was always on tour, and I feel like everything else in my life took a backseat to being in that band and the responsibilities that, that um, were required to do it. So I really I took a very long break, and it's really great to be back in music, but I took five or six years off. And I feel like kind of rejuvenated and hungry and earnest, and I feel like my head's in the right place to do it again. Well, I'm glad to have you back. Um, yeah. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about this new release. Uh, mm-hmm. If you were to run into someone in the street and you had to give them that elevator pitch about this release to get them to kind of check it out, what would you tell them about it? Um, I think it's very tuneful. There's a, um, my favorite part of music that I've been able to work on over the years. I wasn't initially great at it. I really, really love harmony singing intervals and just like three people that are in a room together singing harmonies. I think that's my favorite thing in music. And I think the harmonies on the Scarlet Goodbye record are just beautiful. Um, Jeff and I have very different voices, um, but it's very, very harmony laden. I think it's tuneful, kind of melodic. Um, I think it was a great time to write a record because the whole world seemed like it had just kind of blown up and wasn't anything that it ever was before. So it seemed like there was a really urgent need to write lyrics that were kind of meaningful or, you know, had a vibe to them. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I think the record started kind of as a lark and the first couple songs we recorded came out really good. We were going to make an EP. So we stopped at six songs and we said, let's just keep plowing through. So we recorded 12 songs over two and a half years. We kind of just took our time and I'm very, very proud of the music. I'm proud of the record. Um, it's great to play music again. And, you know, I'd been kind of a side guy. I'm in, you know, in Soul Asylum and also the Golden Smog, but I never really wrote a whole record before. And Jeff and I wrote uh, maybe eight of the songs together, and I wrote four of them myself. So I feel like it's the first time in a very long career that I've um, actually wrote a record. And um, I'm proud of it. And I, I had a great time doing it. It was a lot of work. I kid you not, but I really enjoyed it. And I took it very seriously, and I really tried to find moments of levity and just, you know, I mean, to do that, you just have to have a lot of free time and you have to let everything go, like kind of the year and now, and you just have to sit and be reflective and, um, you know, make a lot of dictaphone recordings and phone recordings. And, you know, you just have to really um, kind of honor the process of writing because you never know when you're going to get a great lyric. It could be when you're driving in your car or when you wake up from a weird dream. So I just feel like I, tuned into all of that and I took it very seriously and I really enjoyed it. I, I can't remember having more fun um, recording a record than this one. Okay. Well, let's talk about you as a songwriter. Um, when you sit down to begin that process, what do you do to kind of tap into the muse? I usually try to come up with a guitar riff first or a chord progression. Um, and then, like, if I hear some, something say something funny or something that might have legs as a song, I try to write down, like, just an idea. I am one of those writers that comes up with uh, arrangements, and then I'll just kind of have dummy words at first. Like, I can record a track with a band because I know how long the verses are going to be. But I constantly rewrite lyrics, and I rewrite choruses right up until, like, I'm sitting in front of a mic in the recording studio singing. And I think... Um, uh, I try to be like some of the songs on the record. There's a song called fresh new hell. That's like really 
stream of consciousness um, in terms of lyrics. It's kind of like, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of like On the Beach, that Neil Young record that I think he was going through a divorce and it's just kind of long rambling songs that can be coherent and incoherent all in the same four or five minute thing. So we did a little bit of that. Um, again, it was an interesting time to write songs because, you know, four months into COVID and what that looked like in the world, everything in Minneapolis was shut down. And, you know, I feel like it was a really interesting time to be introspective about what your view of the world was. Okay. Now, um, I always found that lyric and melody are kind of two different functions of the brain. And, and, you know, lyrics are very structured. They have story, continuity, uh, rhyme, meter, but melody's different. Some songwriters like to work off of a rhythmic groove to kind of allow the melody mm-hmm. to freeform. Others take the lyric and kind of um, dictate it, the, the melody through its cadence. W- where do you get your melodic ideas? Um, I usually start with, um, like, for instance, there's a song on the record called Rosary. That's the first song on the record. It's got a pretty interesting guitar riff and i remember like when i initially started writing guitar riff i i I was sitting up at my apartment one night i have it on my phone somewhere like a little recording of it and i said out loud i go that's great but it sounds too much like um i'm lost in the supermarket which is a really great clash song from life and calling so i was very conscious of that but that's where that came from and then um i think i wrote like one of the lyrics to it and i had a cadence for that but you know, I tried to kind of disconnect the like the chord structure for the song Rosary as a, like the melody is a very distinct thing on the guitar and the vocal line, which I actually play the guitar melody and the vocal line. They're not at all similar. They're completely dissimilar. So it's not my favorite thing to play live. It feels like kind of like, I don't know, calculus or algebra or something. It's, it's kind of complex, but I, I really try to, um, I try to write lyrics I mean, I used to tour so much in Soul Asylum. I always tried to write lyrics that were fun to sing that you wouldn't be embarrassed because we toured all the time. So, like, we had like a dumb throwaway song in your a line in your song. You had to sing it every night, and that got to be like I was just like I, I didn't want to sing anything that I w- I thought was foolish. So I really I kind of really worked on lyrics that at least were cohesive and made sense. And I I try not to be very literal in storytelling. I'm more like um I'm more like painting you know just coming up with phrases i mean i try to tell a story with a song but i I don't see myself as being a very literal songwriter like in terms of you know boy beats girl girl goes off on her own you know boy gets divorced and is really sad and writes a song i try to be not literal at all in structure i try to kind of um my writing is marked with expressions and nuance i would i would hope at least i mean that's really what i'm trying to do Okay. Now, um, every songwriter um, has their toolkit, and um, a lot of technology has really kind of given us some great tools, like the cell phone to capture ideas or home recording studio. What are some of the tools you have found that become indispensable to you as a writer? Well, I used to carry around a dictaphone, like, you know, like when I was writing 20 years ago, and I just used the video element of my phone, and I have to get so much storage on my phone because I have 
you know, probably 3,000 40-second video clips of me sitting around with a guitar, coming up with um, melody ideas, your vocal ideas, and they're constantly changing. So, yeah, I mean, my phone serves as my template for songwriting, and I can usually just set up with either an acoustic guitar or if I'm in my car, and if I come up with, like, a, a melody change for, a, like, a melody change for a verse. So I have... I spend so much time going through what I've recorded. Like sometimes like if you're kind of feeling it and you're sitting up in your, on your couch and it's a beat, I live downtown in Minneapolis, like with the skyline. So sometimes I just feeling it. And sometimes you'll wake up the next morning and you'll like listen to the four things you recorded and you're like, Oh, Holy smokes. I mean, that's, you know, like it's kind of by the light of day, you know, if what you were doing had any levity or not, you know? So I feel like that's really invaluable in the recording process with the Scarlet goodbye in our record we recorded at my partner in the band, Jeff Arendales. We recorded his home studio. So it was amazing to go up to this, you know, attic studio with Wayne's coating and, you know, nice Oriental rugs on the floor. And we did everything in house, all the overdubs, all the vocals. And we, you know, I made a record over three years spending less than I would spend in five days when I was in Solo Island recording for Columbia. So, I mean, you know, the technology has changed so much, you know, it, it's just such a different world. And it really is, to me, you know, recording on Pro Tools at someone's home studio, um, if you stick with it and you learn the process, I mean, it's. I think it's very musical. People complain about it because it's a graph, but I think it's, it's very musical and it's very um, easy to condense your ideas and it's very easy to record a competent band and make it sound pretty good. And it wasn't always like that when I started recording in the eighties, when I was on A and M, you know, you'd go and you'd spend five days at a recording studio in New York city, just setting up to get bass and drum sounds. That, that was the drill, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I remember those days. Now <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit um, about the lineup on this. Tell me, tell me about who are the other musicians on it. Okay, so the other songwriter and singer and guitar player is a guy named Jeff Arendelle. And I met him. I had never recorded with him. I didn't know much about his career. I don't think he knew much about my career. And we were sitting at his holiday party, and he played this track. I didn't know at the time that he'd written this track. It was at a studio, and I was like, God, you recorded that up here? It was just it seemed kind of lovely. So we kind of made a dare with each other that we would try to write a song together. And we wrote one that was called Paris that's on the record. I think it's maybe the third or fourth track. And that's how we got started. And then I had a lot of musicians that I'd played with, like people in the Jayhawks and Uncle Tupelo and Wilco and kind of my crew. And he's like, well, we should record with um, my friend Ben and Pat. So Ben Peterson plays drums, who I never met, or Pat, and he plays bass. And the first time I met those guys... We went to Jeff's studio for three hours and recorded two songs that came out phenomenally. So it was, it was odd to meet someone initially and then sit down and say, well, I got this song and like sing it to him and get, you know, kind of the salutations out of the way, sort of. Okay. Now, um, let's talk uh, a little bit about the industry as a whole. Um we have been in this digital revolution now for like 25 years, 30 years maybe. Uh, and right now the consumer has really embraced streaming as a way to consume music. And it's convenient. It's easy. It's free 
for the most part. Um, but unfortunately, recorded music has lost its status as a product. Uh, it's lost its value. Um, how has I think the thing you said is is it's a service. It's, it's, it's turned yeah. into something. It's exactly what it is. I mean, I never really thought of it that way. But it's not something that you go out and get. It's something that you you enact right. <laughs> or exist in your household. You know. You know, you turn it on. Yeah, you turn it on. I mean, we have access now to pretty much everything that's been recorded in the last hundred <laughs> years on yeah. our phones. Um, yeah. Now, how has this shift in perception by the consumer affected you as an artist? You know. Well, that's crazy have- because, like, I I have like Alexa and Amazon Music, and for ten dollars a month, I have access to just about every song ever recorded. Right? right, which is insane. I mean, think about that. It's ten bucks a month, and I can say Alexa, play "Stumbling In" by Smokey. <laughs> you know, whatever it is. So I feel like that's a pretty good value as a consumer. You know, but I also feel like in my band, um, Soul Asylum, we had a song "Runaway Train" that won a Grammy in nineteen ninety three for Song of the Year. Actually, um, we beat out Whitney Houston and Boys to Men, and that song has been downloaded. 200 million times on Spotify and it's not very much money, which is insane. That's a lot of, that's a, that's a lot, not download stream. That's a lot of streams. Think about that. 200 million. Right. You know? Yeah. 200 and I get a check every month, you know, for a few hundred dollars and I've had checks that are a few thousand dollars, but you know, it's not like for that much volume, you know, it's not, it's not even pennies per stream. It's less than that. Oh yeah, it's 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 a it's percentages of pennies, and you know if you really yeah. look at it, I mean, we cannot continue to operate the music industry with mm-hmm. this particular business model because it's not a sustainable model. It's you know? not. I mean, there's no way to make. I mean, there's no. Plus, the other thing is with we talked about like recording and Pro Tools and how easy it is to make pleasant sounding records and pleasant. Mm-hmm. I think is, but you know, it, because of that. There's so many bands that would, like in the day, would have not gotten a record. They might be great bands, but for whatever reason, there's just so much out there. It's like there's no middle class. There's like a lot of bands, like the Scarlet Goodbye, records out here that no one's ever heard of. And there's a few artists that are huge, but there's not, it's hard to create like an emerging class of music in this, in this, with this template of so much music being released. And so many, I mean, it almost seems like the people that do like pitchfork and like the kind of like they, they curate like web, like, like listening places. They're almost like, they're almost like DJs or like, or like record people now. Like, you know, that's a powerful job. Right. Right. The, in, well, they're the influencers, so to speak. The influencers. That's exactly it. Yeah. Like if you're like, you know, you're like, you do like some Americana music thing and you, you get to add 12 tracks that you think are interesting. I mean, that's a powerful job all of a sudden. Like, you know, in, if you're putting that on people's playlist when they probably wouldn't have reached out and found it before, all of a sudden that becomes a part of the industry that's, you know, viable and, you know, people are trying to influence. Yeah. Influence the influencers, right? Yeah. Well, you know, and, and it's not as regulated as radio is, so, you know, the no. whole payola thing becomes now an issue uh, with the way Spotify and influences are, are operating, you know, because they don't have any regulation. It's like the Wild West. Well, I mean, do, do, you, have ser- do you have serious radio in your car? No, 
I don't. I, I so serious to me seems like I don't know this, but it seems like it could be a payola thing because there's some artists that are played like two. I would say I'm not saying, but Joan Jett and James Taylor on serious so much it's alarming to me mm-hmm. on all formats you know and they and that's big money when you get played on. but series. i mean like who was bigger james taylor or the eagles like you know in terms of i mean it seems like i hear james taylor more than i hear the eagles on if i thumb through this it's just but you're right it, it's it's probably tempting for people that have made money by bullying their way into music business to to influence people you know that 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 are influencers today i think that's probably you know there is no like you can't even you know there's no controlling it i imagine because it's all kind of invisible like behind the scenes you know right well you know there is some technology i've been keeping an eye on that is promising to change the music industry um you know there is this big buzzword called decentralization of the music industry and it's based on that same technology that cryptocurrency you know mm-hmm. uses to kind of you know their promise to decentralize the monetary industry but in the music industry it's a little different um there are these streaming platforms that have been developed um that are utilizing this blockchain technology uh like audius uh, emanate uh audio locks that mm-hmm. they promise to pay up to 80% of the incoming revenue back to the artists themselves. Uh, and oh. they're not... Because what I use as an artist, I use SoundExchange. That's the one the one company that right. monitors my levels of streaming, and I get a check every month, and you can see it's itemized. But, I mean, I feel like since I've been with SoundExchange, like in the five years, I get drastically more money than I did four years ago because I don't think four years ago they were paid much of a percentage of what they were receiving you know right right and and well this this new technology it's more based on these smart contracts so in other words as soon as your music is accessed it generates a payment directly <clears> to interesting you. um and it's not because what sound exchange does it, it's it's like a it's like they they review what has been streamed in what countries right. in the numbers but but so they're going back into time and taking a capsule look at like at streaming they don't do it as it as it's happening so that would be a whole different kind of plateau or a different model for sure right, right? right this is this is all happening in real time um mm-hmm. and the, the thing is is that no company can control these streaming platforms it's controlled by the fans and by the artists they have control of the platform they have control of the revenue and control of the content so it's it's more of a uh taking out all of the middlemen in the music industry so to speak and then they there there are tentacles of this technology that are really interesting how it's being developed uh, one of the things is there's a site called Royal.io that allows artists to create these non-fungible tokens that represent mm-hmm. a monetary um, portion of their songs, such as their streaming royalty or maybe creating uh, uh, NFTs that represent their publishing royalties. 
you know, because you know, when you get a record contract, the first thing they want, of course, is your publishing. But now, and they can sell these to kind of fund their to fund their recording project, or like marketing their records. Yeah. Give an example. Nas did this, and what he did is he created these NFTs that represented point one five percent of his streaming royalties, and he made enough to cover one half of the songs on one half of two songs on his latest release. He sold it to his fan base and was able to generate almost $600,000 in upfront income. And then, now he has up to uh, 3,000 fans that have an economic interest in making sure that his music is streamed because they get paid. Yeah, so they, they share in the streaming process and they would get a report every quarter and say... Yeah. Right. Huh, well, interesting. They, they get, you know, generated through the blockchain this uh, income that now gets sent to them directly because it's now in a smart contract. Now, mm-hmm. as these things get bought and sold on the open market, it's like buying stock in a song. Yeah, of course. Yeah. gets a percentage of that resale in perpetuity forever. So as they buy and sell, he's also getting like a 10% of all that resale value on those NFTs. So it's an interesting mm-hmm. business model where the fans now can um, buy a stake in a song or buy a stake into an artist. I mean, think about it. You know, if you had a record deal, if you really think about it, it's just a high interest loan, you know, a record company. Yeah, it's. Yeah, like in the old days, you didn't have to pay it back if you didn't earn it. (laughs) But think about it. When I I was on Columbia, I sold five, six, seven million records, and we're not recouped at Columbia because every time we sold a CD, which they sold for $14, we got like a buck 30 was our rate. So it's like playing poker at a really shitty table in Vegas. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. The odds are brutal. I mean, that's it's stacked against you, you know. And not only would you get a dollar thirty every time they sold the fourteen dollars CD as your royalty rate, they would take twenty five percent in returns for like defective and and you know. Oh so, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the, just the, the breakage rate on downloads must be terrible. It's a, yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, but think about it. It's like it's like literally playing blackjack on a really bad table because yeah. you know. I mean, I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like. And, but I, I wonder, like, you know, like, in, when I was on Columbia, it was the generation of MTV, so you had to make videos. Like, you know, we'd spent up to, we spent to $200,000 making a video, and it got played regularly, but then that's actually money that goes against you getting your recoupment. So, I mean, it just, like, when we were doing well and we were on the charts, I think Grave Dancers was on the charts for, like, two years, so I felt, like, good about that. But it's, like, the amount of spending that you know is incurred it just the music the music industry was such an excessive thing in the 80s and 90s i mean they were just throwing away money you know right oh yeah. it's heart, heartbreaking to me i mean we could have made the follow-up to that record i think you know i lived at the mondrian hotel in los angeles for a year <laughs> recording a rock record you know 10 songs that weren't that complicated 
And you know, it's just because you don't see you don't see the end coming. You, you don't see the way down. You only see the way up, and you think it's always going to go better. And it's very easy in your mind if you're twenty something or thirty something, and you've had a hit record to think it's you know you're on the great. So it's just amazing how much revenue and money was wastefully spent in the in the in the. And now I think you know there now there's no revenue stream. So it went from like. You know, like the 49ers, like the gold rush in California to a drought, because I don't know how you would make money other than touring and selling merchandise. Um, if you were in the music industry now, if you had a band that, let's say you had a band that 100,000 people in America liked, how would you, how would you market that band? How would you get an in, income from that? And how would you, how would you manage that? It just seems like it's impossible. Oh yeah, and what know, would what would be your revenue stream? Even if you had a hundred thousand people in this country that thought your music was great, and that was your fan base, how would you market that? How would that be profitable for you in, in that in that in that mode? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's butts in the seat. I mean, you, you know, I mean, touring yeah. is still the way artists make money. Is you know, even back in the days, you know, of you know the heyday, the golden era yeah. of, of music. You know, the record companies were screwing artists left and right, you know, on recorded music. I mean, they made it on the road, you know, selling their merch, selling. Of course. And we know. get we would get tour support as we were starting out. We, you know, get buses from A&M and they would give you 60 grand for two months to go on tour. And then, you know, so, I mean, they wanted you out there because the butts in the seats are the same people that buy CDs back right. in the day, too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that all came off your 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 bottom line at the end. You know, mm-hmm. they 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 weren't giving it away. They were they were recouping it. You know, they were recouping it again at at a rate of you know you getting ten percent of what they sold your CD for. So yeah, I mean it's a great business for them. I mean I found out how much money Donnie Einer made. You know, he's making one hundred fifty million a year. I was like, holy shit, that's my boss. That's insane. You know. Yeah, yeah, and you know, um, and and right now I think you know when the pandemic hit. Uh, a lot of these artists started going on the internet and started creating content and whether it's live streams or, you know, and utilizing social media as their broadcast network. And if you Mm -hmm. think about it, the sociological aspect of this is that we've been kind of hit with this reality show programming over the last 30 years (laughs) Yeah, of and, course. And now artists are starting to realize that shit the like fans, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They want that intimate connection with their artists. Mm-hmm. And when the pandemic hit, it became really clear that the fan base was thirsting for that. So, <laughs> yeah, the artists that are really gaining success have created almost their own reality show. Their con- yeah, their content. But you know, for me, it's, it's like a generational thing almost. I saw a lot of my friends and peers that I've been in bands with, like, you know, like there's someone would say, Hey, you got to make, you know, you got to make a video and, and, you know, but some of them almost look like hostage tape. (laughs) It was so bad because it's like, what am I doing here? You know, it's just, but I think it's totally a generational thing. I think if you're like in your twenties and you're in a band and you're starting, you're very comfortable in front of a camera you know, you know how to interact with people digitally and, you know, but it's, it's, it's hard to create content when before the content was the meaning of your songs and the melodies of your songs. It's like a whole different realm out there now, you know? Oh yeah. You know, and, and, 
it, it's um, it may be generational, but I see um, even the older artists are are utilizing things like TikTok and and getting the younger generation mm-hmm. exposed to their music and exposed to what they're doing um, by creating this content. And if you think about it. You know, you were talking earlier about how it costs two hundred and fifty thousand to create, you know, your your music videos. You know, today we're all walking around with a video production studio in our pocket. You know, yep. our, our cell phones. You are correct. Yeah. You know, we're shooting in four K. There are apps, that, and that's what people are used to looking at now too. So it's like yeah. it's it's the it's the the standard. You know, it's like it's what people that's what people compare it to. You know, I shot this on my phone. You know, that's it. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, my wife, every night she sits in bed and she she brings out her phone and spends at least a half an hour, hour, you know, watching puppies, babies and kittens in these short form videos. Yeah. You know, and so that yeah. is the, the content that that drives the industry. today. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that to become successful you have to embrace this this whole world of content this whole world of social media um what are some of the things that you're doing that that are utilizing this technology to your advantage well we hired krista there you go <laughs> i mean yeah i mean you know we kind of have a very minimal um thumbprint like on instagram and thing and facebook and i mean I, I, I realize it's important, but I don't want to be like the one that goes on the our Instagram site every time we play a show. I just don't, I feel like it's like if you're not good at it, it's just merely it's like blatant marketing shows. And I, I mean, people see right through that. I think you have to what we were talking about. You have to develop content. You have to develop develop a connection. So we're yes. just getting started. Our record comes out in March, and I would probably like to hire someone that's twenty. Um, and or 25 and really good at it and just run with their ideas and be, you know, like, but I think to generate content, if it's not in your DNA specifically, I think, I really think it's a generational thing that we're sort of, we're talking about. I think, I don't know, is like, um, is Jackson Brown's content on TikTok relevant? I, I don't know. I don't look at it, but you know, I bet it's not as relevant as someone that's 25 and sing songs, you know? Cause I really feel like it's just, it's, it's such a different, it's just such a different animal. It's just, you know, and it, it is important. And I feel like, you know, when I was got signed a major label, I was like on an indie band. And the most important thing for us was even though we were on Columbia and commercial labels was like, you know, keeping our, our fan base, um, committed to us being earnest and hardworking and, you know, not giving into a bunch of suits. That was like the battle that we fought. Mm-hmm. And I don't assume it's any different today. It's just, I mean, there's still a battle that you have to, you have to connect with your people and you, you know, you got to give them things that only you give them that they want. But it's, you know, I feel like, it, yeah, I, I'm not great at it and I wish I was better. But at this point in my life, it doesn't bring me a lot of joy creating content for the Scarlet Goodbye. I just I feel like there's got to be someone that's infinitely better at it than I would be, and I would defer to that person. Well, I think you kind of hit on it early um, on in there. You have to have that authenticity. You know what I mean? Yes. People have to 
you know, I, I don't believe that you have to constantly market. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's not about, you know, come to my show, buy my music, listen to my music, stream my music. Because that's hollow. I mean, anybody yeah. can do that. It's like if, 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 you're, if your Instagram feed is a series of advertisements for your shows and your T-shirts, I mean, people, that's, people are going to get tired of that very quickly, you know? Right. They have to get to know who you are. They have to uh, uh, see things, to see things that are, yeah. yeah. You know, they have to connect to you on that personal level. Your brand has to be something that people can buy into. Uh, it's almost like funnel marketing where you cast a very wide net, you know, by mm-hmm. showing people, you know, here's my hobbies. These are the things I like to do outside <laughs> of the music. Bring them into your funnel and distill them down into people who really would invest into you as an artist. You know what I mean? It's it's mm-hmm. kind of that mentality where you're not hitting them with the hard sell, but you're allowing them to come down your funnel to where your hard sell is. You know what I mean? I mean, in, in, in like when I was a kid, you know, when I was 12, I didn't even love the band, but I, I wrote a letter to the Grateful Dead, and like in my little 12-year-old penmanship from a... And I told them I was a deadhead and I liked the band. And I remember they sent me this huge round tube of posters and stuff and postcards and they wrote me a letter back. But I feel like that was incredible marketing. And that that's like the Grateful Dead was a band that felt really like I would say Metallica is kind of the same thing. There's it's a band that's very, very, very connected to their fan base. Yes. And you know, there's a loyalty there. And I, why I brought that, but it just was so odd to me, like to write from Duluth, Minnesota, the Grateful Dead, a letter with my crappy little twelve-year-old penmanship, and a month later to get this huge folio in the mail of like a dozen posters and cool stickers. I was just stunned, you know. <laughs> I was just like, wow, you know. And I, I'll remember it to this day. But I also feel like what we were talking about. I think you have to do something similar to that, like make people feel if they go on to your Instagram page that there's really something there for them specifically that right. that you know that you touch them on a personal level and they feel connected to you um, mm-hmm. as a person, not so much as an artist, but as a person. Yeah, they feel yeah. you know, vested in you, and I think that's important yeah. as important as we move forward. Because if you want people to, let's say we go into this world where, you know, we're using blockchain streaming and we're selling, you know, stock in our music, in our in our songs, you want people to invest, you need to create the brand that they're, you know, feeling that they're invested into. Exactly, that they're going to want, they're going to want to wear that t-shirt and they're going to be proud of it. Like, I'm a part of this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I totally see what you mean, but but it, you know, it's a it's a whole different paradigm, obviously. I mean, we, you know, it's it's just it's crazy, and I think people are good at it, and people struggle with it. And I feel like, yeah, I don't know, like maybe the answer that I'm struggling for is how is that related to your music? You know? Well, I mean, I mean, you can have really crappy music, and you can be really really good at marketing it, or you can have really good music. And you could be really crappy at marketing, and you kind of wind up in the same space, I guess, you know? Well, you know, it's not so much about the music, and it's more about getting people to invest in you as a person and then move to your music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's kind of um, backdoor kind of marketing. 
you don't you know you you can't hit people over the head constantly because there is so much of it out there yeah everybody is saying listen 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 and then Mm -hmm. you have someone that comes along and say hey you know i like to take walks in the woods and here are some pictures of that oh by the way i'm a musician if you go here you can check out my music you know what i mean your super fans have already been there but you cast that wide net and you start bringing mm-hmm. in people with different types of um, interests. You know, if you're into chickens or if you're into <laughs> yeah. cooking or if you're into, yeah. you know, that brings in a different group of people. And then, yeah, you I mean, like this- the best case scenario of what we're talking about, I'm in a band uh, called Golden Spock. And I'm in that band with Jeff Tweedy, who plays in Wilco. And to me, like, Wilco is a jagger. They're just, like, so good at being involved with their... They have Wilco Radio. They do streams of all their shows. They have hundreds of thousands of people in this country that look for their content every single day from that band. And there's, you know, I don't know who... who, But they're just very, very good at that. And I'm envious. I mean, it just seems like... They, they're thinking about things that haven't happened yet, and they're implementing it as I'm on the phone with you. It's just, it's remarkable that they're as good at, but they, because of that, you know, every single show they play is you know, sold out at Red Rocks or the Beacon Theater, wherever it is, because they have really created this machine. Right. Well, they, they've created a sense of celebrity around their content. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, when yes. people see them on TikTok or Instagram or on Facebook or, you know, Twitter or whatever the case, whatever the platform may be, when they see that name on the marquee, it's like, oh, wow, let's go see them in person. I know these guys. Yeah, because yeah. I, I know about them. Right, right. So, you, you know, you're part of the fandom and, you know, mm-hmm. you, you get the opportunity to see them in person. It's like being on The Letterman Show. And then going out and doing a show, everyone that's seen you say, oh, wow, we got to go check them out in person. Yeah. You know, so you can create yeah. that sense of celebrity today with your cell phone and and basically, you know, free broadcast network, you know, on social media. Yeah, I mean, media. It, it's, it, it's an art, it, you know, people that are really good at it. I'm a little envious. And I, you know, I, I don't think with, like with Wilco and specifically, I don't think it cheapens their fans interact. Oh, like no, when they go to the shows, they still, they still get, they still get a great rock show, you know? So I feel like, I, like some, I think that's a really good, interesting case for how to do it. Oh yeah. And for every will call, there's probably a hundred bands that haven't got it figured out that could, you know, that could arguably be as successful if they were better at the things that they're not good at. I guess that's just human nature, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely human nature. Well, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a real yeah, pleasure. Yeah, I enjoyed I've really enjoyed speaking with you as well. Yeah, you're very good at what you do and um I hope uh you make uh maybe another when the record's out in, in the spring I'd love to do it again. So thank you so oh, much. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting speaking with you and getting your perspective on this ever changing landscape that is the music industry. It's it's, yeah. it's really yeah. You know, poignant well, i think so we, thank you we need to have these conversations sure. and we need to drive the train instead of being in the caboose you know <laughs> and we need to drive the train instead of driving the bus you're, you're right. right yeah 
All right. So, well, I appreciate it, my friend. So thank you so much. All right. And we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from that release. And you guys are going to love this. So turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight. <laughs> All right. All right. Be well, my friend. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Things borrowed, some are blue Who can I turn to? Never knew I'd look so good on you Should we kill the virus? The virus kill us too Some kind of fresh new hell No running water But we're drowning in a well Don't start with me I'm not in the mood One and the same In solitude
Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Make you shout now, honey. Gonna make. 